This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. Last week, John and Mary Lou Missile joined us to discuss the novels they've written with the Seminole War as its setting. In this week's episode, they return to discuss the Seminole Struggle, their comprehensive general history of the U.S. government's nearly half-century determination to remove Seminole permanently from Florida in the 1800s. Spoiler alert, the Seminole struggled to resist, but in the end, the government failed to remove them all from Florida. A stalwart few remained behind in South Florida where, set to their own devices, they have prospered and have ultimately become a valuable partner with state officials in protecting their Everglades sanctuaries. John and Mary Lou Missile, Welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. We're glad to be here. Thank you for having us. What were the three Seminole Wars and what happened? There were, according to historians, three Seminole Wars. The first one was 1817 to early 1818, an incursion by American forces into what was then Spanish Florida. The second one, the big one, lasted seven years from 1835 to 1842, and that was an effort to remove the Seminoles to a new reservation out in what is now Oklahoma, was then known as the Indian Territory. And then the third war was an attempt between 1855 and 1858 to remove the last few hundred Seminole out of Florida. Now, in our book, we actually start counting the Seminole War period from 1812 when American forces attacked Seminole towns around the Alachua Prairie. The Seminole, however, don't see it that way. They don't see it as three separate wars. From their perspective, it was a continuous confrontation shifted between military, diplomatic, and social pressures that lasted almost 50 years. Now, we have to point out that both views are valid. Yes, the Seminole felt continual pressure for the entire 46 years, but for the government, each of those three periods meant that things like orders were being sent out from Washington for troop movements, Congress was appropriating money for the conflicts, and supplies were being sent to the war zone. Those actions had beginning and end dates, and in that context, they can be seen as being three separate wars. This was a conflict of national importance. In your preface, you write that when you published your initial work on the Seminole Wars, you lamented its story being relatively unknown to Americans and to the majority of Floridians. You say it shouldn't be that way. What is the public missing by not knowing of these wars? Let me give you just a few of my favorite statistics, and this is just for the second Seminole War. It lasted seven years. Indian Wars at that time only lasted maybe a year or so. It cost roughly $30 million, yet at that time, in 1836, the whole annual federal budget was only $25 million. You had half of the regular army down here at one point with thousands of volunteers from all over the country as far away as Missouri. Army's top four generals came down, and they all left somewhat embarrassed 
the only Indian war where the Navy has an important role, and it's also the only Indian war where slavery is an important factor. Those were consequential acts by the federal government, and yet we remember little in our national memory of the Seminole Wars. Why do you think that is? It was an embarrassment to the country, and nobody wanted to talk about it. What has changed in raising awareness of these wars with the American public? When we talk to people with reenactments or other events or talks that we give, it seems that over the years there's been a slight change from people saying something like, I've never heard of this, to something like, I've heard about this and I'd like to know more. Mind you, there are still way too many people who fall into the I've never heard of this category. Well, we'd like to give credit for a lot of that awareness to the Summer Awards Foundation with all the work they've done with publications and members getting out to meet the public. And one of the most important things they've done is work with the state to bring out the Summer Awards Heritage Trail Guide. And that lists all the places in Florida that have some connection to the Seminole Wars. And more than 50,000 copies have been distributed to the public free of charge. Yes, indeed. And John talked to us in episode 10 about that. There's also the many reenactors who give freely of their time at considerable expense to bring these annual reenactment events to life. You published your book in the early 2000s. And then you published an improved version called The Seminal Struggle. What did you learn in the succeeding years that you added? Well, it's been about 15 years between our first history of the Seminole Wars and our latest edition. And most of what we learned during that period were small things. But like all life's lessons, you absorb them, and it changes your outlook and interpretation of things. Probably the most important thing we learned during that period had to do with the Third Seminole War. Around the time our first book came out, our good friend Joe Kanesh also came out with a book about the Seminole Wars. And what we all agreed on was that in both books, the Third Seminole War was not well covered. And there were several reasons for that, but the main one being that there just weren't enough resources to work with at the time. So over the next 10, 12 years or so, Joe, Mary, and I began to gather everything we could find on the subject. And the result was a very detailed history of the Third Seminole War, co-authored by all three of us, that came out in 2018. And a lot of that information was incorporated into the new general history of all three wars. What did you learn from the Seminole in the meantime, and what misconceptions did you address? Well, just over the years, as we began to know more Seminoles and get more familiar with their points of view and their culture, naturally, we just learned things from them. One of the biggest probably changes from the original Seminole Wars book to the Seminole Struggle is that we actually don't call it the Second Seminole War, except when we get into the third one to refer back to the other one. We just call it the Florida War, which is what it was known as at the time. But it's more of a continuum, reflecting that seminal perspective that it's just one war. Critics have said you haven't broken any new scholarly ground with your book. Is that a defect? Well, 
we didn't feel it was within the intended scope of the work. When we first got into the subject, when I was working on my master's thesis, there were all sorts of well-written scholarly books and articles on the various aspects of the wars, and many have been written since, but there was no one book that gave a good overview of the wars, and that was what we wanted to create. Why is it enough to give a simple historical narrative and general history of the wars? Because that is how you introduce a large number of people to the subject. I agree. For example, when we set up our table at reenactments or some other events, we often have all of our books and the foundation books and significant works of other authors on our table. People will often come up and sometimes get overwhelmed by all of it and ask, well, where do I start? So you need to understand the big picture before you can delve into the details. Give us a brief historical rundown on histories of the Seminole Wars. I sometimes joke that when it comes to studying the Second Seminole War, Sprague's book is the Old Testament, and John Mann's history of the Second Seminole War is the New Testament. Sprague served in the war and built his history from both his personal experiences and by using much of the official correspondence that went between Florida and Washington during the war. Of course, it suffers from the absence of any Native point of view, and it does include a lot of material that simply wasn't available to Sprague at the time. John Mann was a history professor at the University of Florida and spent much of his career digging up everything he could find on the Second Seminole War. His book was published in the 1960s, but there is still nothing that comes close to it for a history of the war. Why is that so? Because he did such a thorough job, and he did it proper historian. He gathered the facts, and he presented the facts. And, yes, there's been more found, but nobody has done a good job of simply taking all those facts and presenting them in such a good manner. As good as they are, why are these two books not enough? Okay, before we wrote our book, if you wanted to know about the entire Seminole Wars period, you had to consult multiple volumes. David and Gene Heidler did an excellent work on the first Seminole War, entitled Old Hickory's War. And James Covington did a small but well-researched book on the third Seminole War, it was called the Billy Bowlegs War. Back then, getting the big picture meant acquiring a small library. What did Dr. Mahan leave out from his history of the Second Seminole War? On the Second Seminole War, very little and mostly from personal accounts that he didn't have access to. How true is the soldier's statement that had the government just left the Seminole alone, they likely would not have threatened anyone, especially since they were occupying land of little or no use to white settlers? It's mostly true, but with a couple of big caveats. First, in the early stages of the war, the Seminole occupied land the settlers very much wanted. It wasn't until later in the war, when they were driven into the Everglades, that the statement became valid. Second, even that was temporary. Even before the Civil War, people were talking about ways to drain the Everglades and make the land suitable for cultivation. Yes, the Seminole would have been peaceable had they been left alone, but that wasn't going to happen. For most of the latter half of the 19th century, the statement about the Indians 
being peaceable if left alone held true. Very few whites ventured into the Everglades, and I think that after the Civil War, Floridians began to see that the Indians were no threat if treated with respect. But by the 20th century, things were beginning to change. The Everglades were being drained, and whites were moving further south, all of which threatened the seminal way of life. And they responded not by going to war, but by learning to live with the whites while still retaining their identity. And they did this primarily by entering the tourist trade. Now today, some people say the Seminole were exploited by the tourist trade, but the Seminole of today don't see it that way. They found an economic niche and used it to their advantage. Adaptability is one of humanity's greatest traits, and we admire the Seminole for being so good at it. If not for the friends of the Seminole, many more Wilson, Captain Charles Coe, etc., writing and going to Congress to raise awareness about the Seminoles, how might the Seminole have fared? They probably wouldn't have gotten some of the reservations they have now. They probably would have been driven further into the Everglades. They wouldn't have gotten, say, medical help and things like that. It's really hard to estimate how much these people helped, but they certainly raised awareness of the Seminole situation and caused people, politicians especially, to realize that these people needed some assistance and that they deserved to be in Florida. Writing about history is about the past, but it is also about the future. What did you mean when you wrote this? Well, the only good reason for studying history is, is so that we can learn from our past mistakes and hopefully avoid committing them again. Yes, learning history can be very enjoyable, but applying the lessons learned is what's really important. In your epilogue, you write that one lesson from the Seminole Wars is that if a nation intends to defeat a determined indigenous population on their home soil, the nation must be prepared to spend whatever it takes in terms of time, lives, and money to overwhelm the native militarily. Sounds simple, if not easy. What are you getting at here? Okay, yeah, it does sound simple. But as far as I can tell, no one's learned the lesson yet. We obviously didn't learn in Vietnam because we fell into the same trap in Afghanistan. The Russians didn't learn it when they were in Afghanistan, but now they're relearning it in the Ukraine. Sometimes, you know, someone defending their home will always have a greater incentive to fight against the odds than someone trying to invade another's territory. Plus, the natives know the lay of the land, which is a huge advantage. An invader has to completely conquer. The defender only has to wear the invader out. Another lesson that comes from all this is that if you want to make someone appreciate something and hold it dear, try taking it away from them. The Seminole fought tenaciously to hold on to their land and culture. What do you think would have happened had we treated the Seminole with due respect and given them the same rights and opportunity as whites? Chances are that within a few generations, they would have assimilated, just like millions of immigrants did, and their culture would have largely faded away. Obviously, we're glad it didn't happen, but it serves to show the ultimate stupidity of the war. If the American people had really wanted the Seminole to disappear, they should have been their best friends, not their worst enemy. 
What contemporary challenges does this present to American overseas campaigns? What did the Army do then in the Seminole Wars it can't do today, and vice versa? The main advantage the Army had during the Seminole Wars was that the Indians didn't have outside support. The government kept saying that they were being supplied by English Bahamians or Spanish Cubans, but there's little evidence of it. And it's always easier to blame someone else for your failures. Today, for example, if you want to defeat the Russians, all we have to do is keep the Ukrainians well supplied. Now, I've heard some people complaining about the cost of all that hardware, but that is nothing compared to what a direct war with Russia would cost them. And the Russians aren't stopped now. That's what it will lead to. The Army in the Seminole War, they were not as equipped environmental conditions that we had down here. Today, we send a lot more medical equipment. We take a lot better care of our soldiers. It's just a different time period, a different way of waging war. When you say that there are practical lessons that we can learn from the Seminole Wars, what lessons are these? Well, the practical lessons are things we already know, but somehow manage to forget. For example, don't underestimate your enemy. Keep your supply lines open and your troops well supplied. And if you've made a mistake, admit it. Probably one example of that, main one we pointed out in the book, was that after two years of the Second Seminole War, most of the Seminole had been captured or sent out west, and the remnants had fled down to the Everglades. General Jessup wrote back to the War Department and said, hey, we pretty much won this. Let's declare the war over. All we have to do is keep enough troops to you know, keep the Seminole isolated down there. Let's end the war. Of course, the government was so invested in getting every last Seminole out of Florida that they immediately wrote back and said, no, you will not end the war until every last Seminole is out of Florida. This led to four more years of war that had no real advantage to the Army. When it was over, there were still Seminoles in South Florida, and it cost millions of dollars and hundreds of lives. Yet the government couldn't simply admit that, hey, we made a mistake trying to drive these people out when we didn't really need to. But if they let the Seminoles have a buy, the other tribes would want a similar deal cut. Well, that was part of the government's reasoning, is the old domino effect. That's something they had to consider, but I don't think it would have made much difference. They'd have still driven the creeks west. They'd have still forced the Cherokee to go west. Yes, both those groups would have, and they did, resist to some extent, but it would have made any difference. What did the Army learn that they tried to avoid in later conflicts, or implement if it was a good thing? The big one, I think, was cooperation between the services. Because Florida was underwater most of the time, the Army and Navy had to work together to invade the Seminole homelands in South Florida. And the Navy had always fought on the sea in big ships. In the Seminole Wars, they learned to fight on inland rivers and small boats. And it was a skill that was later used in Vietnam. Joint cooperation was a good thing. And then there's the bloodhounds, which were not. Okay, the bloodhound thing was someone in the Florida legislature had heard about that the British had used bloodhounds in Jamaica to end a long-running slave rebellion. And they said, oh, well, this will work great here in Florida to end our long-running war with the Seminole because they'll just go down and find all the Seminole hideouts. So they hired a pack of bloodhounds from Cuba and brought them over 
with the trainers and everything. What they eventually came to find out was that the dogs are really good at tracking runaway slaves. And that they really didn't care about Indians. Their noses simply didn't pick up Indians or something. Plus, the water. Tracking metals through water just doesn't work very well, so the dogs were stymied when they got down into the Everglades. It became a political issue because human rights people back then were thought that the bloodhounds were going to attack the Indian women and children and chew them all up, or that they're only here just mainly to track down runaway slaves. Anti-slavery people were upset about that. It became more of a political thing than a military. It's a popular complaint that the United States had no right to take Indian land. The issue is more complicated than that. Help us understand. Well, it's because by the laws and treaties of the United States, Spain had ceded Florida to the United States, which meant the land was American. We could do with it as we pleased. By Indian laws and customs, Spain had no right to cede Florida to the United States, and the Seminole had every right to defend their homes. Getting back to that about the rights to take Indian land, obviously each side saw it differently, and each side felt they were in the right, and both views are valid. Rights are not handed down from up above. We create them for our own purposes, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. What we need to remember is that rights are a legal matter and that people often hide behind the law when committing morally questionable acts. Don't get morality and legality confused. Like in the Treaty of Payne's Landing that the Indians would go out west to Oklahoma and give up their land, one point of contention was that there was a group of seven chiefs that went out to Oklahoma, looked the land over, and then signed the paper, Treaty of Fort Gibson, and said, yeah, we like the land, we'll go. That would leap well, that they liked the land. Of course, when they got back, they said, well, we were forced to sign this, or else they wouldn't allow us to come home. And the tribe says, well, they just went out to look at the land. The decision is the tribe, not that group of seven chiefs. There's a morality in there. What exactly did the government do to get those chiefs to sign that? And were they just totally regarding what the Seminole wanted? John, why shouldn't we hold these people accountable? who pursued the quest for land, wealth, and power. Listen, we can't hold them accountable because they're dead. I mean, what are we going to do? Go up to Nashville, dig up Andrew Jackson, and chop the skull off his skeleton? What's that going to accomplish? The vast majority of these people were doing what they felt was right and proper according to the standards of their society. They were under no obligation to live by our standards any more than we're obligated to live by the standards of people who are going to be living 200 years from now. What we can do is use these people as cautionary examples to help us live better lives today. Placing blame is easy. It's much harder to live up to our own standards. Life is full of difficult, no-win decisions. Who among us hasn't taken the easy way out, even if it's morally questionable. And what's important is that we learn from the mistakes of the past and do what we can today to see that they don't happen tomorrow. That's the hard part and where we should focus our attention. How should Americans of today feel about what happened to the Seminole? First place, Americans today should not feel responsible. The people who lived back then, they were responsible. 
As a nation, however, we should feel ashamed that in the process of building this great nation, we treated so many people so badly. What we owe their descendants is the utmost respect and full equality. They've had a much more difficult legacy than most of us. John, you also write that it's not what whites did to Seminole, but rather what people did to people. What do you mean by that? Okay, white Americans certainly do not have a monopoly on the ability to do evil. And if anyone truly believes that before Columbus arrived, the Indians didn't engage in brutal wars of conquest, and we've forgotten before the transatlantic slave trade, slavery was well established in Africa since at least Egyptian times, do we need to be reminded that the atrocities committed by the Japanese in World War II? There is no race or ethnic group immune from committing great acts of evil, nor any specific day or age. This sort of thing won't stop until we have the courage to admit what we are all capable of. What was seminal agency, and why is it important to consider it? Too often we fall into the trap of thinking that because the Seminole were outnumbered and outgunned, everything that happened in the war was instigated by the government. Yet when you examine the war, what you come to realize is that most of the time it was the Seminole who chose the battlefield, not the Army. They knew precisely what they were doing and why. We also need to keep in mind that all three of the official wars began after a Seminole ambush of Army personnel. The Seminole people decided that of all the bad options they were faced with, and believe me, there were no good options, going to war was the best one. They had no way of knowing how it would turn out, and it would be arrogant of us to second-guess their reasoning. Why is it a good practice for a historian to consider Seminole agency? It's out of simple respect. A lot of the literature from the time describes them as savages. Well, they weren't. They had their own civilization, culture. They're as human as anybody else. They were making decisions based on their situation, and we have to respect that. We have to point it out. They knew what they were doing. Don't forget, these are men who were raised from childhood to be warriors. Yeah, they didn't have West Point, but they had older warriors teaching them the trade, so to speak. They're definitely not just, like they say, savages you know, who had no idea of how to wage a proper war. They knew what they were doing. In Florida, for a very long time, the Seminole have been a tourist attraction. Today, they're much more. How so? Well, I think it has something to do with their wonderful adaptability and an attitude that they're still unconquered. They saw opportunities in the gaming industry, and they had the courage to declare their sovereignty and take advantage of those opportunities. The risk has returned the rewards, and they are to be admired for it. A lot of people don't realize that the Seminole are one of the nation's largest cattle producers. Before these wars, the Seminole had thousands of herds of cattle. That's one of the causes for them, because white people wanted those cattle. They're just natural at it, and it's one of the businesses they're good at. They have orange groves, things like that. And, of course, they still have their tourist industry. We do have this idea... We now see them as casino operators. Well, of course, you know, they do much more than that. Just like Florida, it's more than a tourist state. Yeah, we see Disney World and all that, but there are people in Florida doing regular, ordinary, everyday things. 
It had nothing to do with the parasitism. Same way with the seminal. Please, the, please assess the state of relations between the seminal and the non-seminal, that is, the rest of Americans. Are there hard feelings, animosity, wary interactions, harmony and understanding, or is it a work in progress? All human relations are a work in progress, especially if there's been great animosity in the past. There is some wariness on the part of the Seminole when dealing with the government, which is perfectly understanding considering past injustices by the government. But on a personal level, we found the Seminole wonderfully welcome and friendly. We have many Seminole friends, and I'd like to think it's because we treat them just like we treat any other human being. We demonstrate a genuine interest in them, show that we're not interested solely for our own gain, and treat them with respect they deserve. But then again, isn't that how we should treat everyone? As we wrap up, how great a threat were the Seminole to Americans? It's simply the fact that this is one of those instances where perhaps we have learned from our mistakes. Over time, people have begun to realize that there were no threat in the first place. If they'd have been treated with respect, they wouldn't have been a danger, but we weren't smart enough to know that back then. It's something we've learned over time. That's the way humanity progresses. Where can people learn more about the Seminole Wars now that we've podcasted and name-dropped a few titles? If people want to learn about the Seminole Wars, the best starting place is our book, The Seminole Struggle. It's meant to be readable. It's not a heavy academic work because that's not what we wanted it to be. We wanted it to be something that people could pick up, and when they enjoy reading it, and when they finish, have a very good understanding of what the Seminole Wars were all about. We'll have to leave it there. John and Mary Lou Missel, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority. No problem. Okay, thank, thank you, you for having me. This podcast is copyright 2023. The Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.